disclaimer. The discussions and personal opinions of the guests do not replace professional advice. It's recommended that you seek your own independent professional mental health or legal support to meet your individual needs. Honestly, I, I prided myself on the fact that nobody knew about it and, mm. and that I could hide it from people, you know, and, and there were there were a few people that knew. I had, you know, some very, very close friends from high school and, of course, my family, but nobody in the swimming world knew. Nobody at mm. Auburn knew, I, you know, to be a survivor. But I say that in the most positive way of, of yeah. really finding empowerment and finding that there was nothing in practice that was going to be worse than what I had felt like I had been through. And so it was that that ability to overcome things, but but knowing where that strength was coming from, if that makes sense. Hello and welcome to Life in the Cyclone podcast. So today I have such an exciting guest and it's Margaret Holzer in the US. Now, Margaret is a two-time Olympic Games representative for the USA. She is a three-time Olympic medalist, world champion, American record holder, and a world record holder. Now, Margaret and I were teammates in the US in the NCAA system at Auburn University. And she is someone that I can tell you from my own personal experiences, I admired her, I looked up to her and her swimming achievements and accolades speak for themselves. So Margaret Holzer, again, Olympic swimmer, a motivator, public speaker, and currently an advocate against sexual abuse. Welcome, Margaret, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure having you. <laughs> you have an absolutely incredible lived experience and life story. I'm so excited to share this with the listeners and even for myself. Do you want to share a little <laughs> bit about it with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess I'll start with the sexual abuse because I'll go, I'll try to go chronologically. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was abused from the ages of five to seven. Um, mm-hmm. This was by a good friend of mine's father. So, you know, typical story, somebody I knew, somebody I trusted. It was not, you know, stranger danger. You yeah. know, this was, this was a, a, a friend that I was going to their house for playdates. They were coming to my house for playdates, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so I was abused for two years. Mm-hmm. And then I was very lucky for a variety of reasons. Um, my abuse ended because this family ended up moving away. So oh, not because right. I did anything. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, right. but, but they, they moved. And um, so, yeah, so my abuse ended. Um, but typical, like most kids, I didn't tell anybody because my yeah, abuser right. had asked me not to. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so I, I kept that to myself um, until I was 11 years old. And then I was very lucky again. Um, we actually had sexual abuse education in, in my school Ooh. at that point in time, which wow. is, yeah, That's it was really so, forward back in the day. <laughs> oh, and it's for Alabama, right? Yeah. Like we're never forward at anything. And so, you know, we were, <laughs> we were like on top of it and this was back in 1994, by the way. So like, just to give I'm you really impressed because one of my questions was going to be around that. <laughs> and so we'd had the sexual abuse education and that ultimately ended up prompting me to disclose to my 11 year old best friend at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, of course, had had the same education that I was. So she was able to recognize it and say, hey, you know, I, I think you were molested. Um, mm-hmm. And then the next part was she was like, you know, you need to tell your parents, which is exactly what, you know, she should have done, right? Like yeah. she believed me and then said, you know, tell a, t- a trusted adult, which in my case was my parents because they were not, you know, the abusers. Yeah. And so that was kind of the, the I guess the next steps that, that started the process of, of healing and, and getting help and going to therapy as an 11 year old and, and, wow. and figuring out, I guess, what happens next. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, you know, I was swimming during this entire time as well. And, um, I'm very, I was very tall for my age always. I'm, I'm five eleven, and I oh, it's probably, a blessing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've probably been five eleven since I was 12. I was starting to get good at swimming at this point. So, yeah. you know, I, I had this natural outlet, um, which was really, really helpful. It was certainly not something my parents planned, but I had this natural outlet that, that was a really healthy way when I was a kid and going through all of this to kind of deal with my emotions. Cause mm-hmm. you have so many emotions that you don't understand and you don't know what's happening and you don't understand just any of it. And so I would go to the pool and I would, you know, cry and practice in my goggles where no one could see me and I could just mm. kind of be alone in my head. And 
you know, you spend a lot of time alone in the pool yeah. by yourself swimming um, and you're with your thoughts. And so I was able to, to process mm-hmm. a lot of things. And, um, you know, ultimately, yes, went on to swim in college at Auburn and, and competed in two Olympics in 2004 and 2008. And yeah, that's... That's it in a nutshell. That's the quick version. The quick version. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because, you know, as your teammate back then, I think you can be so absorbed in the swimming world. And we sometimes look at it in like a really one plane. Well, there are times you're just looking at a one plane kind of field. It's just the swimming, the hard work and the outcome. And, you know, later mm-hmm. in your career, obviously you have revealed to the world you had a childhood sexual abuse experience. And it was interesting to me because obviously I was much less educated in psychology back then or even childhood sexual abuse back then. But it was one of those things that even I thought would have no idea about it. So how did that childhood sexual abuse and mental health kind of impact your swimming career in any what way? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's interesting you say that because honestly I I prided myself on the fact that nobody knew about it and, mm-hmm. and that I could hide it from people. Um, you know, and, and there were, there were a few people that knew I had, you know, some very, very close friends from high school. And of course my family, um, but nobody in the swimming world knew nobody at Auburn Ooh. knew. Um, <laughs> and, and that was, yeah, I mean, and, and that was kind of by design because at that point in, in time, it was still something that was so personal, but I, I was still working my way through a lot of things. And, and there's a lot of things that, that come up for anyone when they're, mm-hmm. you know, 18 to 22, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're just, you're living on your own for the first time. You're potentially becoming sexually active for the first time. Yep. Like you're just doing the, the normal things that kids that age do, but especially coming from a history with trauma in it, all of a sudden mm-hmm. I was now being faced with some of these things as an adult versus mm-hmm. what I had processed as a child. And so I was, I was very, I guess I would compartmentalize things because um, yeah. I didn't want people to see what I was going through and I didn't want them to know. And, and, and at the end of the day, you don't want to feel like you're a freak. You don't yeah. want to feel like you're the odd man out or that something's wrong with you. Even if you think something's wrong with you, you don't want anybody else to know it. So I, I was very private <laughs> about all of those things. <laughs> and, and you know what? So you should be. So, and I love yeah. that you're highlighting that. You know, one of the things that we constantly talk about in psychology is trauma and complex trauma as we know when it comes from childhood in your formative years but also the level of shame that is involved in a lot of these um you know sexual molestation and abuse and it's always one of the stigmas out there of you know why didn't they talk about it why didn't she say anything so i think it makes entire entire sense that you just naturally wouldn't mm-hmm. and then try to work through that on your own to a degree until you almost could. A hundred percent. Well, and, and also I was a psychology degree as well. And it was interesting (laughs) because I didn't do this again intentionally, but every single paper I wrote in college was about sexual abuse. Yeah. And, you know, and I would just, I would sort of recycle the same information, but that was my way of wanting to learn about the topic because I was in the same boat you were like, I didn't have the knowledge base. I didn't really know what the statistics were. I didn't know how common it was. You know, you, Mm -hmm. you very much feel isolated and think you're the only person dealing with this. And, Mm -hmm. and so I, I very much took these psychology classes because I was like, okay, this is a way I can learn about this without anybody wondering why I want to know about it. Right. Like if I'm just writing a paper, it's like, oh, well, yeah, it's a it's a paper for class and nobody questions it. And nobody thinks about why are you why are you so interested in this? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my my ulterior motive was not really sure what I was going to do with the degree, but I just wanted to learn more about it. And and obviously with psychology, there's so many different directions you can go. But I, I very specifically honed in on the sexual abuse side of things because yeah. I I wanted to learn about myself in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's quite common. And I think that's in some ways like a self-exploration space that you can almost find safety in as well. We know evidence will show you that sport is a resilience factor for any individual because it, you know, forces people to kind of work through their mental health issues. Would you say that there were times when you were swimming because you've, you've gone through so much adversity as a child and then you've had an incredible journey in your career. Did you find at times you had the mental health overlap in the swimming side that was a struggle? And I'm curious to hear if there were. Um, you know, I think there was good and there was bad. And so it's been interesting in a lot of ways. 
again, I think as an adult, having that, that filter and that lens and looking back at things and realizing how you were processing mm-hmm. things and, and maybe not understanding it at the time. But, you know, I would say one of the things that it, I probably didn't figure this out until I was like near the end of my swimming career. Um, you know, but we talk a lot about how, how survivors of, of, of really anything traumatic, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of times they turn to drugs or alcohol or, or these negative behavior patterns. And I didn't really do that. And Mm -hmm. what I realized that what I was doing was I was doing the opposite, right? I, I didn't have self-esteem. I didn't feel good about myself. And so I call it the bucket of despair, but Mm -hmm. I kind of had this, this pit or this bucket of despair that I constantly felt like I had to throw accomplishments into this, to this pit. And it was never going to get full. I was never going to be good enough. I was, there were, there were not enough accomplishments in the Mm -hmm. world that I could achieve to get that, that sense of self, but I didn't understand that. Right. Like I just kept thinking like, if I have a world record, if I break the American record, if I win Olympic medals, like I'm going to be able to walk into a room and and feel like I deserve to be there. And now I look at that and I'm like, that's really screwed up. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really not healthy way of looking at things. But that was how I saw it. Like, I just felt like it was like everybody was here and I was somewhere down here. So I had to do all of these like extraordinary things just to be normal, like not even better than anybody, like just to be normal. And Mm -hmm. like I said, it it took me a long time to figure that out. But I felt Mm -hmm. like that was a really powerful realization of being like, oh, like I don't have to be perfect Mm -hmm. in every area all the time. (laughs) It's so interesting to hear you say that because, you know, we have these, uh, one of the things that we look at sometimes in core layers of beliefs and it's an unrelenting standard that you can have about yourself that's quite internal and it's about yourself, your behaviour and your performance, right? And Mm -hmm. all these achievements that you're listing, you know, and we're talking, and, and for me, I get it, like, world record holder, icing on the cake things, like Olympic medalist, these are the epitome of what you could get in any realm of sport and you know I know and being your younger team mate like I just it was I was so inspired by all of that and one of the things that's interesting that I want to share with you was you know I want to in that intro when I was thinking about what I'd say about your bio was I just also remember you swimming with such tenacity like there was no give up you were the 200 backstroker and you had such a maybe what I would say, like a well, endless well of just, you could keep going. And it, and it, it makes sense around what you're saying in that drive and what you were almost seeking. And it shows you the power of the mind and body, right? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, and, and it wasn't all bad. Um, obviously like what I just shared was probably a little bit more on the unhealthy side. Um, but I would also say there was, there was an interesting, side effect that was very positive that again, I didn't figure out in the moment, but Mm -hmm. once I I realized it and was able to tap into it. And and that was the fact that I would, I would catch myself standing up on the blocks, right. Or about to jump in for a backstroke race. And I would, I would look around at the other seven girls, you know, and I would literally in my head be like, I am tougher than everybody here. Like I have lived Mm -hmm. through something. What have they been through? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and I, I didn't know what they had been through. Right. Um, but that's what I would tell myself. Like in my mind, I was like, I always felt like I had this, like, oh, I'm not going to make an Olympic team. Like that's, that's the worst thing that's going to happen to me in my life. I've been sexually abused. You know what I mean? So like, I, I had a, an interesting perspective, but at the same time, it was like, I did learn how to, to, you know, to be a survivor, but I say that in the most positive way of, of really finding empowerment and finding that, you know, there was nothing in practice that was going to be worse than what I had felt like I had been through. And so it was that, that ability to overcome things, but, but knowing where that strength was coming from, if that makes sense. Yeah. I I mean, I can totally, I, I love what you're saying about that, about, um, giving you perspective because, you know, when we look at trauma, um, one of my favorite, um, one of the trauma giants that I always sort of follow too, he describes it and it's Gabor Mate and he describes it as trauma is someone's capacity to feel wounded, right? And mm-hmm. when you're talking about the trauma that you had as a childhood, um, you know, when a child and you're so little, that pain feels really awful. But then you're putting this into perspective as an adult or even a young adult in sport 
on a plane of winning and losing a race or um, making a team and not a dream. And I think in our minds we dream about these achievements, but lived experience, honestly, in what you're saying has shared and given you so much more resilience and it takes time to get there, doesn't it? It does. And it's in it, with anything, right? Like you have your ups and downs. And mm-hmm. as much as I would think that one day I would have the next day where I would ver- revert and not feel good enough. Right. And and it's, mm-hmm. it's funny because even as an adult now, like that's still my default, right? Mm-hmm. Like when something is going poorly or I don't feel good about something, like I'll catch myself falling back into those patterns. I, I think the difference is being able to talk my way through it now and, and yeah. realize yeah. that like, I can see the pattern happening and I can catch myself in it. Doesn't necessarily mean that I don't still feel all the emotion, but (laughs) I at least maybe allow yourself. Yeah. It's like, I, okay. I know I have value. I know that I am good at things. I know that there are people that love me. Right. And, and even if I don't necessarily believe it, I can tell myself this and I know I'm going to snap out of it. I just have to allow myself to feel the emotion and go through it. Whereas before you could sometimes you would just get caught up in these things and and you wouldn't be able to see your way out of it. And so I think that's to me what healing is, is it's not yeah. that you don't ever not it's not that you don't ever feel things. It's just that you you learn how to, I guess, walk your way through it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Because <laughs> one of the things, obviously, we we are talking at all things psychology and you know, I'm interested on what your journey was like towards a psychological recovery. And yes, with things like this, it's a constant, but obviously in life, it's a constant for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your psychology journey like? You know, um, what the difficulties were, whether it was anxiety or were there times of depression or the trauma reactions, mm-hmm. you know, even highlight to us what some of the darker days were like. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um when I had gone to counseling the first time as an 11 year old, my counselor had told my mom at some point in time, you know, when she's an adult, when she becomes sexually active, when she starts dating, she's probably going to need to go back to therapy. Mm -hmm. And so my mom had told me that. And so I, I kind of in the back of my head had that thought of, Oh, at some point I'll go back to therapy as an adult. And then I just didn't get around to it. Didn't get around to it. Didn't get around to it. Mm -hmm. And then I had one very specific thing happen. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being like, Oh, (laughs) I need to go back to counseling. Um, and it's interesting because it was at a swim meet. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was at the Pan Pacific championships actually in 2006. And I was 23 at the time Mm -hmm. and I ended up having a race and I think I was, I was second. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was, you know, second in the world at the time, um, Mm -hmm. And my time was like a 10th or two off of my best, you know? And, and I just remember, I mean, I was devastated, just Mm -hmm. devastated beyond explanation. Like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thinking like, I have no worth, I have no value, like just all of these things. And and the thing is, is that was not an abnormal reaction for me. That was actually how I normally felt when I had what I perceived to be a bad race. But there was something about that particular day. And I think it was the fact that my time really was not bad. It was almost my best time. But there was a a logical part of my brain going, I think maybe this reaction is not justified for what just happened. Like, I think this, I'm blowing this out of proportion. And that was kind of the first time where I was like, huh, maybe everybody doesn't feel like this. Like, I just always assumed this was how everybody felt, you know, like you're going to be disappointed if you don't have a good race. And so I was like, (laughs) yeah, everybody feels like they have no value. Like, what do you mean? That's weird. And so all of a sudden, um, and and interestingly enough, that was the first, the first time the U S had traveled with a sports psychologist um, and he was on staff with us. And so I was like, so I just had this reaction. I was sexually abused as a Kid, I feel like this might not be normal. I realize that we're not going to be able to get into this tonight because the trip is over like tomorrow. But my main question at the time was, should I go to a regular therapist or should I go to like a sports psychology therapist? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and my rationale was, you know, I am an athlete. Not that I wanted to talk about swimming because I didn't, but I was like, I'm an athlete and I think like an athlete and I'm going to approach healing like an athlete. And so I was like, would it make sense for me to go to somebody that understands how weird we are (laughs) and how apparently, you know, like, get it? (laughs) Like they would get it. And so, um, so that's what I ended up doing. And so he ended up hooking me up with a a psychologist in Auburn. And that was the first time I went back as an adult. And then I went on and off, um, for the next six, seven years. Yeah. And then I took a break for 10 years. And then I actually just recently got back into therapy about a year ago. 
Wow. So, oh, congratulations. Like it's such a beautiful yeah. thing for people to find a grounding space with their professional, but obviously that healthy yeah. long-term therapeutic relationship, right? A hundred percent. I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate of therapy. I, you know, I think it's having that outlet and, and mm-hmm. knowing that it's a safe space to talk about whatever you want to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you can heal in your own time. And it's, it's even been interesting again, like coming back after kind of a 10 year break. And I did the same thing. I was like, Oh, I don't have time. I'll get around to it. And I finally was like, no, I actually need to do this. Yeah. Um, and it's been interesting because at this, at this point, obviously I'm not an athlete. I'm not swimming. I'm not having to, to deal with some of the, the issues related to that, you know, but I'm still, I'm still dealing with, you know, for me where, where I have my trauma and where I have the hardest time is with dating. Right. Yep. And yep. and having panic attacks and having anxiety and, and figuring out, okay, how do I, I've put this off long enough. How do I address this and, and figure out how to, to go about this in a quote unquote, normal, you know, normal healthy way. way. <laughs> mm, you know, you were talking about, um, which is quite common with athletes. They tend to overly identify, well, their identity to a degree as an ego is tied up into the sport, right? Mm-hmm. And you highlighted at the very beginning around the recovery for trauma and that journey to mature, become an adult with all of it. You know, it was tricky. It was around being able to come back to your true self and your identity. What was that like for you? And would you say that you got to a space that you were a little bit more secure in your identity or you had found yourself through all of the swimming journey? Absolutely. Um, I I think the biggest thing for me um, was learning, again, that sense of self and and realizing that, you know, what was the what was the balance of who I was and and how do people look at me and, and ultimately like people caring you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I, I think I always, to some extent had, I don't know, I, I always had my own confidence to an extent. I mean, it would waver and it would be weird, but I, I would say I, I really struggled with how I perceived other people looked at me and whether mm-hmm. or not people actually cared or were, were these my real friends were my teammates, do they care about me beyond the points that I can score? And mm-hmm. it was finding that place of realizing who, you know, who, I mean, you're not friends with everybody, but realizing who does care about you, who doesn't care about you and finding that balance. And not everybody has to be your friend. That's okay. But, yeah. but recognizing that that's not personal, that's not an attack on me. That doesn't mean that I don't have value because I'm not friends with somebody or I don't get along with them. And so yeah. it's, it's finding that. And again, this is always easier said than done. Um, but it's, it's finding that, I think that space and, you know, and, and, and then especially, you know, getting to the point where I did retire from swimming was, yeah figuring out who am I without this. And and I think in a lot of ways I had already started doing the work um, Mm -hmm. because of my history and my trauma. And so in a lot of ways, I think that transition might've even been easier for me than, than some of, you know, our teammates and and my friends that I saw who really would quit the sport and just had no idea who they were. And I think I had already at least begun. I still went through it, but I had begun the process of trying to figure out who I was anyways. And so, you know, at least I, I kind of was already doing that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've said, I, I heard, I heard this peppered all the way through, but you know, because the abuse happened from a family friend, let's say, and your mom and dad didn't know, um, it sounds like through that journey from a child, adolescence, even school, like, and that's what we're saying, I'm really impressed by the programs because you had a language around it or you were somehow taught and educated to have a language around it. But one of the big things I heard from what you're saying is that you have a really healthy but positive supportive network around you, whether it was swimming, whether it was family, whether it was school or uni, there were people around you that helped you kind of work through that. Is that right? hundred um, percent. I was very, very lucky for a variety of reasons. I mean, the first two people I told my 11 year old best friend believed me, my mom believed mm-hmm. me. Um, so I, I definitely had that family support and, and the close friends and, and even in college, because I didn't, like I said, I didn't necessarily disclose to anybody or tell people what was going on, but it's still, I still had that sense. And, and, you know, Auburn especially was so team oriented and, yeah. and, you know, there was so much focus on, on just being a good teammate and and caring about each other. And I think one of the things they did really well was 
you know, leaving things in the locker room, right? Like when you have a problem with somebody, you leave that in the locker room, you don't bring it to practice. And, you know, it was that same, I think, principle of, of recognizing that, you know, people did care about me, you know what I mean? Or like I said, they were my teammates and and they would have my back. I think that was the biggest thing was you didn't necessarily have to like someone or get along with somebody, but you knew that these people had your back and you knew that these people at the end of the day cared about you. Um, because that's, that's what a family does and that's what a team does. So I think that was something that Auburn did really well. Um, which did also help me with my, you know, yeah. abuse recovery, even though, again, didn't, didn't necessarily know that or realize that that was going to be something related. Um, but I definitely think that it was. Beautiful. And I mean, it's like I can hear there was a sense of belonging. I share the same sentiment with you. I think that's why we both loved it to the way that we do, but it's it's the grounding space. It's the acceptance of the level of a social identity around it, but knowing that people will be there. And as we always talk about in, in the swimming world, is they're with you in the ugliest days or the worst days, and then they're with you in the best days. Oh, 100%. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I talk about you know, and I'm sure you do the same thing. Like when you see people, you don't ever talk about the things that were impressive. You talk Mm -hmm. about like the worst days of practice (laughs) and you talk about like the horrible set where you were all just (laughs) miserable and like, you know what I mean? And like, that's where the bonding happens. Like at the end of the day, nobody cares. Like if you won races, they're like, oh, but do you remember that day we were all crying in practice? Cause it was so horrible. It's like, it's all the really bad stuff, but in a good way. <laughs> yes, it is a bonding, isn't it? It's like, and you still support each other through that. And, you know, even at the beginning, it said there were days you would cry and maybe on a mental health space, let's say, you were struggling with whatever you were going through and there were tears welling through your goggles. But the reality is everyone, I think, you know, swimming and sport, everyone has their battles, emotional battles to a degree, and then they ha- they're forced to kind of work through them. And I think yours that I love hearing your story is because you've come out of a place of such resilience. And I would agree with you. And like, I mean, from someone who was a teammate, the confidence and the security that you have in who you are was definitely evident when I was around you. Um, And, you know, when I hear that you're a public speaker and a motivator now, I think it's a great space for you because you are a sexual abuse um, advocate or childhood sexual abuse advocate for the National Children's Advocacy Centre. There's a darkness to light program that you are in. You do it through the USA Swimming, USOC. So there's so many advocacy platforms that you do. Can you share with our listeners some of that work? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it all started with in 2008, after the Olympics, I decided to go public with my story and the fact Mm -hmm. that I had been abused. And that was really the first time I disclosed in a public fashion in any sense. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at the time I, I didn't have this like grand scheme of what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, I kind of just thought like, Oh, that's yeah. going to be it. Like <laughs> I'm going to tell everybody, hopefully I'll help some people. And you know, they're at the end. Um, and I had reached out to the national children's advocacy center. And so uh, that was the advocacy center that I went to as a child. So an advocacy center oh. is essentially, you know, when, when your child has been abused, this is the organization that essentially steps in and walks you through all the steps. So it's oh. got, it's got the psychologist, it's got the forensic interviewers, it's got the detectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm forgetting people, the medical personnel, but it's got everybody, you know, all the different pieces under one roof. And the idea oh is that the child only has to tell their story one time instead of having to make 16 different appointments and tell 16 different people, you know, this is mm. what happened and get re-traumatized and re-victimized. And so I had been through, you know, this, this service as a child. And so I, I naturally reached out to them and was like, how can I help? What can I do? Um, and so that was kind of how I first ended up going public with my story. And then, you know, people started asking me to come speak at their events. And I was like, huh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's, that's a thing. Like I can do that, <laughs> you know? And yeah. so that's, that's how I became a speaker and then, you know, started traveling and, and working with different organizations and, and, and essentially just telling my story. But it, yeah, it was, it was, it was never, like I said, it was never something that was necessarily planned. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's something that I have really enjoyed. And, I would say that, you know, I've always known I wanted to be involved in some capacity, but I didn't know what that would look like. Right. So getting that psychology degree, that was my way of learning about the topic. And I I knew I would use it somehow, but I didn't know what that would mean. Right. And I didn't know what what job that would be. Um, And so it was it was really nice that that things kind of happened 
I guess, naturally, which I think they do with any career, with anybody, whatever you're doing, but where you start and sometimes where you finish aren't necessarily the, where you thought it would be or how the path would go, but it's it's the way things should have happened. Yeah. Yeah. And the doors open along the way, um, obviously that you would never expect or predict because the interesting thing that I would like to ask you is, you know, if you're sharing your story on a public platform, you're speaking to people, you're motivating them. How do you feel about and work through your vulnerabilities on in on a public platform? You know, it's interesting. So the the night before I I went public with my story, um, and I actually would recommend this to anybody who's mm-hmm. who's ever thinking about going public in any capacity. But I was really nervous about that first interview because I had never done an interview. I didn't know what they were going to ask. You know, there's always the stereotype that reporters are just horrible people and, and ask you terrible things, which luckily has not been my experience. But I was worried that I was going to say something and then regret it. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden somebody would know something that I wasn't comfortable with them knowing. And so I literally sat down with my mom the night before my interview um, and we ma- we went through everything that had happened because she's mm-hmm. probably the only person that really knows everything in detail. Yeah. And we made a list of this is what I'm OK talking about and this is what I'm not OK talking about. And I can honestly say in the what 14 years I've been speaking, I pretty much have not wavered at all from that list. Yeah. Like I I'm very comfortable talking about a certain set of things and that's yep. what I talk about. But then there's things over here that I'm like, that's, that's for me. And that's not something that I feel the need to share with people. And, you know, I think that's important as I think, again, this, it's about having your own boundaries and your own space and knowing what you're comfortable with. And at the end of the day, I share what I'm comfortable with. And there's a couple things over the years that have, have moved over from one list to the other, but, but for the most part, I've, I've always, I've, I guess I've always had those very strong boundaries and, and if I get asked a question that's that I'm not comfortable with, I just navigate my way. My way, yeah. Talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> I'm like, you didn't ask me that, but I'm going to talk about this over here. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I feel that it's such a special thing that you're sharing with us about your mom and her going through that with you because it's such a huge thing to be able to work on boundaries and limitations in all relationships because essentially trauma and sexual abuse is a boundary violation. So the learning was to be able to set a healthy one. And I love that you can do that in the work that you do um, and stick to it, that you keep, you know, there's there's space for you for safety. There's space for you that's personal. I think that's so great. It's interesting because I say this um, and I've, I've recently been working on a book. Um, oh, wow. And it's, <laughs> the book is all the stuff I don't talk about. So it's, it's been an interesting, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> an interesting experience because it, it took me this long. It took me 14 yeah. years to get to a place where I was like, okay, I do, I do want to start talking about some of these things. Yeah. But, but also, you know, as much as I can stand up in front of a room full of people and not get nervous and, and talk about things that make other people very uncomfortable, it was really fascinating sitting down. And I did a lot of this during the pandemic because, you know, we were all at home, right? So what else yeah. did we do? Um, but I started writing some of these things down. And it was the first time that I I had that same like panicky feeling that I had when I went public with my story the first time. Yeah. Like that same like, oh, my God, everybody's going to know. Like, and it was just fascinating having that again after having been a speaker for such a long time and being like, wow, like, OK, there's there's still stuff that that you know, can make me uncomfortable, which I think is important because as much as, is you know, healing is always a journey and a process. Like I don't look at it as a final destination. I look at it yeah. as it's something you're continually working on and, and recognizing that I still had those, those places that I feel insecure about. And, and I think sharing that because again, you can look like the most confident person on the outside and you can look like you have everything so together and then on the inside you can be like oh my god like what is happening you know and yeah. and it was it was almost like I had that feeling again and was like oh okay yeah take a deep breath <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it, it's when you talk about um your your work I think what you're saying is some of that vulnerability will essentially always sit there. Um, and it, it, you know, you will get closer and closer and closer to it. Some days you're really great with, with that, but healing the wound that you're talking about from childhood is always an ongoing journey and an ongoing process that essentially ideally gets a little bit easier. I wanted to ask you, cause yeah. you know, when you were talking about some of the mental, the mental 
health struggles along the way, whether they play out in relationships now in dating, whether you had panic attacks or panic-like feelings close to swimming races and you were exposed to them. Could you highlight what some of the more difficult things you had to go through from your trauma? What were some of the battles that you worked through? You can keep it as brief as you like as well. Yeah. No, well, it's funny. So I, I used to never get nervous as an athlete and I don't get nervous as a speaker. So the things that you would, you would associate or traditionally assume that people get nervous for, like they Mm -hmm. tell my, I tell people I didn't get nervous at the Olympics and they're like, what? And I'm like, (laughs) I don't know. It was just a swim meet. Like how many times have I done this in my life? You know, it's a 200 backstroke. I've done 8,000 of them. Um, but things like that never, never, I never got nervous, but like, Mm dating, going on a date, which is something that everybody and their uncle does. I I will have panic attacks. Literally. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can give myself a panic attack thinking about going on the date. I don't even have to go on the date. I can just mm-hmm. think about it and get myself all worked up ahead of time. And, and it was interesting because I, for a long time, didn't realize that what was happening was a panic attack. And it was only a couple of years ago that mm-hmm. I, I read something and I don't remember who it was, but it was the way they described it. And I was like, Oh my God, that's a panic attack. Like when I learned about this in school, however it was described, didn't resonate to me in my mind. That was not the same thing as what happened to me. Like I always pictured like people like you see in the movies, right? Like these people sitting on the side of the world, like the road on the curb with like a a brown paper bag, like breathing in and, you know, and I'm like, I would rather be caught dead than like, you know, sit with my head between my knees and like have somebody see that. (laughs) I might be doing that, but I'm not going to let anybody. I think, again, this goes back to like, I always have this idea of like, nobody can ever see that I'm hurting. Nobody can ever see Mm. what I'm going through. And so I, I literally learned how to have a panic attack in a room full of people. Nobody you, would know. Because, can you go into detail yeah. about that? Because I'm curious, because I know what you were talking about as a psychologist is a very internal experience that you have. But mm-hmm. if you could potentially share that with our listeners. And when you say like, you can have a panic attack in a room full of people, what are you talking about? Yeah. So I think for me, the topics, first of all, they're typically going to be something related to sex, related to dating, related to at the end of the day, the the violation of what I perceive to be my boundaries and, and what I feel is my comfort zone. And especially in college, in my early twenties, it happened a lot. It doesn't happen as much now, probably because I know the triggers more, but you know, I I remember in college, like we could all be in the locker room and and Mm -hmm. girls would just be telling their stories about the dates they went on over the weekend or who they slept with or who did what or whatever. And at the time I was a virgin and I was not dating and I was not Mm -hmm. doing any of these things. And so it's like everybody would be sharing their story and I would be, I I had nothing to share because I wasn't doing any of this stuff, but I was terrified that people were going to start asking me like, why is she the weird girl that's not dating? That's not hooking up with anyone that's not doing anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I had to create this persona, which for me ended up being that I was one of the guys. Right. And so I'm like, Oh, I'm I'm just one of the guys. Like I'm not going to hook up with them. They're my friends. But that was what I had to do because I didn't want anyone to ask me why I wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. And, the, and I couldn't, I couldn't fit into the conversation. And so these conversations would happen and it was literally, you know, it, it was this, how do I, how do I appear normal with nothing to contribute? And then the whole time you're just thinking everyone's going to find out they're going to realize that there's a reason. And, and and at the time you don't realize that nobody, I mean this in the nicest way, but nobody cares enough to like yeah. delve into other people's problems. Typically, like everybody's so consumed with their own life in a, in a good way. Yeah. And actually, I think that would have helped me if I'd known that sooner. But I was so worried that people were going to ask me questions and why is she not behaving normally? And why is she not doing this? And then that would lead one thing down to the other and then they would figure it out. Wow. So so, so by what you're saying, just to um, sum that, would that be then you're saying, obviously you had all these thoughts, which are, you know, the panic attack and war and what they're going to ask me and point of differentiation, say, about dating and sex life. The reality when you say you can be in a room like that in a change room and have a panic attack, is that where like you could just appear normal externally, but you would feel those heart racing, sweating, um, like breathless, all that would just happen inside. hundred percent. And that, and that for me is what happens. So when it, when I actually have an attack, 
I feel like my heart is racing. Mm -hmm. I feel like I can't take a deep breath and Mm -hmm. I'm like very shallow breathing. And when I talk, Mm -hmm. I can hear a difference in my voice. I don't know that other people can hear it, but in my head, I'm like, I sound funny. Like they're going to know that I can't like, I'm like shallow breathing right now. I can't take a deep breath. And I also feel like my hands get really like tingly and I I feel like they're shaking, even though they're not. But it's that sensation of like they're they're shaking and yeah and so yeah I mean usually I I you know I would just get quiet and I would try not to talk because I was afraid that people would notice it in my voice. But even when I did talk, I mean at least if anyone ever did notice, they never pointed it out. But Probably but yeah, not. <laughs> exactly. But it's yeah. exactly what you're saying is it's 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 everything that you're feeling internally. And, you know, you're in this room and you're just terrified that someone's going to notice. And then honestly, it's a relief when nobody does. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, And you say you would hope that nobody notices. And that's the thing in that, you know, the disconnect that you can feel with your own mind and your body, your own body and what you're feeling internally to the internal, in a psychology jargon way, we say internal world, external world. It's the Mm -hmm. power of what you can, your nervous system can do and essentially overcompensate by like trying to essentially hide that and protect your vulnerability from, I mean, look, a room full of your teammates don't really need to see or know to the depths of your trauma or pain. So it will go into a self-protection space. Well, and, and even, even to this day, like when I'm speaking, for example, you know, I actually prefer speaking to audiences where I don't know people because mm-hmm. it's, it's easier in my opinion to get up and, and talk about things. And I don't know, you just, there's no connection there. And so it's easy, it's easy to kind of disconnect and talk about things that are uncomfortable, but you know, like, like people will say like, Oh, has your mom heard you talk or whoever? And and actually, and the answer is yes, she has. Um, but the few times my mom has heard me talk, I literally will make her sit at the back of the room or like, preferably if there's like a pillar or something where I can make her hide behind it. Because it's like, if I see her, that's when I like, I will, yeah. I feel vulnerable. I feel yeah. like I will lose it and I will start to come apart. And I'm like, I can keep the facade up. I can be strong. I can, you know, keep everything together. But then when you do, when you have that person that, oh, hey, there's my kitty. Oh. When you, when you have that, that person that, you know, can see through it. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're um, your safe, it, safe it can space be people, right? Yeah, your, your mom is like a safety net and a safe person that you can, you can show all of your vulnerability to, and she has been there along the journey with you, which makes sense. And you know those emotions tend to just come a lot quicker, um, and you, you'll feel what you naturally feel. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly, and, and I I love that I can show her that, but I don't want to show everybody else that because she's there. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, That's it's true. finding, it's finding, you know what I mean? Like it's finding that, that balance of, again, who are your people and, and what are the scenarios and the situations in which you feel comfortable? I love your story. I think it's so great. What would be some of your key messages that we could share with our listeners around working through childhood sexual abuse, trauma in your life, you know, to being the best in the world in the 200 backstroke, like you were absolutely unbeatable. What would be your key messages for people that you could share about mental health? Yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, I think anybody who's listening that has been abused or, or dealt with any type of trauma, know that you're not alone and, mm-hmm. and, and find those people and, and, and honestly find help. You know, I mean, in an ideal world, everybody would disclose their sexual abuse and the first person they would tell would believe them. Unfortunately, yeah. no, but that's not what happens often. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I just try to remind people that if you tell 85 people, tell 85 people, because there are people that care and that will believe you and that, that want to help. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the biggest thing is knowing you're not alone. And then to, to specifically answer your question about healing and, and the journey there is I think a lot of it is honestly just giving yourself grace. You know, I I think as an athlete, I am very hard on myself. I also have this attitude that I should be able to do anything and that I can do anything, which is good. But the flip side is that when I am triggered or when I do have a panic attack, I get really frustrated with myself because I feel like I should be able to just turn that switch and turn it off. And then when I can't do that, it makes me feel like I haven't done it right. Or why am I not able to do this? And I, why can't I master this thing that I'm trying to master? And I think sometimes it's it's taking a step back from that and saying, 
again, I'm human, right? And it's normal. And this Mm -hmm. is a process and you're going to have days where it's easier and it's harder. And and it's allowing yourself, I guess that forgiveness in a way, that forgiveness of saying it is okay to have these emotions and these experiences and it's okay to feel it. And even on the days when I'm, I'm rationalizing my way through it, I can't always turn the emotion off. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I can logically go, well, okay, this is irrational, but I'm still feeling it. Mm -hmm. And then just allowing yourself to sit with it. And and that's uncomfortable. And that takes time. And it's not always a lot of fun. But like I said, it's, it's just giving yourself grace and knowing that it's a journey and it takes time. And yeah, you know, it's okay. Oh, love that. I was like, oh, it's being the kindest to yourself on your darkest days, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a learning process to get there. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. And, and I think as, as, I don't know, I think as people, we just naturally, we naturally assume that we should be able to do these things and that it should be fast or that we should be able to just like, okay, you know, turn it off and Nope. (laughs) It's not like that. (laughs) No. You know, you were highlighting something really interesting because obviously I'm based in Australia um, and we get people tuning in from Australia and then the US as well. What is your system like to support um, people who have experienced childhood sexual abuse or sexual abuse, whether it's current or past, do you feel that you have a good um, network of professionals, healthcare system that is around that in the US? Because I imagine, I mean, Australia and the US, we tend to kind of mirror each other to some degree. I'm curious what that, yeah. what you would say the professional network's like. Yeah, I think there are a lot of amazing resources out there. I think the biggest thing is that people don't necessarily always know that they're there. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and honestly, to that point, my mom, my parents didn't know what it was either. And and when I disclosed to my mom, my mom literally called 911. Like she just called oh, the police. Yep. She didn't know. And so I yep. think sometimes it's knowing that like, you don't have to know everything, but there are people to help. So go to your, your traditional resources, right? Luckily with the internet, everything's easier to find now, but if you yeah. just call the police, they'll get you to the right place. They'll get you to the organizations that are local and that can help you. And you know, they'll help you find the avenues that you need. Um, so the advocacy center, as I mentioned before, um, is quite extensive. They actually have, they have a couple in Australia. I don't know how far they are in the process, but I know at one point there were, um, they were trying to get some set up. And Mm -hmm. I think in the U S there's around a thousand advocacy centers, something like that. I don't know the exact number, but, but they're all over. So they're in all 50 States. And and obviously every state has more than one, you know, some states have more than others, but, but, but it's definitely an amazing network. Advocacy centers are specifically for kids that are 18 and under. So they're dealing more with children. Um, I would say a a traditional system after 18, you're going to go to a rape crisis clinic. And that, again, doesn't mean you have to have been raped, right? You can still have just been sexually assaulted, but that's going to be for your adults versus your children. Um, But other than that, I would say the way they do things is very, very similar. It's just the, the age groups is probably really the only difference. Is it actually called the rape crisis unit in the U.S.? Some are. Yeah. So they have rape crisis clinics, rape crisis centers. Yeah. A lot of times that's usually in the name somewhere. Yeah. In the name somewhere. It's really interesting because I think for many of the, you know, clients or people who have experienced sexual abuse, assault, molestation, anything under the category, any kind of boundary violation in there, the big word that often people find difficult um, is the R word. And I say that, I've mirrored that off many clients of what they've shared with me. And it's the word rape. And actually, um, our police um, at some point had a rape unit to investigate childhood sexual abuse kind of cases. And then they had to change it to the family violence unit for sensitivity reasons. So I was curious about that. Yeah. I would say, again, like with children, at Mm -hmm. least child advocacy, um, but at least with adults, they still do seem to have that. So who knows? I think people get caught up sometimes in what happened and they, Mm -hmm. they either undervalue, you know, what happened to them because I mean, even in my own case, I wasn't raped. And so when I very first went public with my story, there was a part of me that felt like, well, what happened to me isn't bad enough, right? Like Uh, no one's going to care because I didn't have the worst case scenario. And it's it's, it's, then you feel guilty. (laughs) Like I feel guilty that the worst thing, you know what I mean? But but people, I've, I've seen other people do that. I've seen other people who, you know, were sexually assaulted or, you know, in the office Mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, but it wasn't that bad. Nothing happened. And 
I'm like, okay, just because that you weren't raped doesn't mean that nothing happened. Like that's, yeah. it's still inexcusable that, that somebody is again, crossing that boundary Absolutely. and, and mm-hmm. violating. Cause what it does to me at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's violating your trust, right? Yeah. It's undermining your sense of value. It's undermining how, how it can make you feel. And mm-hmm. the specifics of what happened don't matter. And I, I mean that in the, in the best possible way, yeah. but it's, it's, the damage is, is the boundary violation. It's not yeah. the specifics of what happened. And so yeah. I think for, for people that sometimes feel like, oh, well, you know, I didn't have the worst thing happen to me. And it's like, well, yes, that's good. However, that doesn't mean that what happened to you is okay. Absolutely. And obviously what you're saying is there's a many survivors and people who've experienced it tend to minimize their experiences in comparative to others because, mm-hmm. and I will actually add in there, it comes from such a generous and compassionate space of people of how much love and generosity they give to others that they then tend to dismiss and minimize their own pain. And that's really unfortunate where, you know, the learning is to advocate for yourself, advocate for others, which is beautiful work that you're doing. Um, At the end of each episode, I tend to have these ethos life questions. So I'm going to ask you some short, sharp, quick questions, and you can give me the first answer that comes to your mind. If you could leave your legacy in this world, what would it be? Honestly, helping people. I, I hope at the end of the day that by sharing my story and, and being a speaker that that I have helped someone in some capacity, whether that's to come forward with their abuse and get the help they need, whether it's making people realize they're not alone, you know, whatever that is. Um, mm. At the end of the day, that's that's why I do this and what I've always wanted. You know? you know, when anyone says helping people, it's just such a beautiful thing to live a life with purpose and intention. In one word, if you were to sum up what you've learned from your mental health over the years, what would it be? I think tenacity. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, and I know I'm, I'm expanding, but I, I think people are stronger than they give themselves credit for. And, and yeah. knowing that you may not want to have to survive things, but that you can. Having that knowledge is very powerful, knowing that you have strength and that you can get through things, especially when you don't want to. What is your Q word that helps you stay grounded in everyday life? That's a hard one. <laughs> I would say the biggest thing is just just breathing, right? Mm. Like taking taking a deep breath and centering. Like when I really feel off balance or when I really feel emotions are coming up, is it's it's just honestly taking a deep breath and trying mm-hmm. to just kind of relax into that. I mean, I feel like that's very cliche, but what is the last sentence or message that you would like to share about mental health to everyone? Again, I think just the importance of it first and foremost, and not minimizing yourself, mm-hmm. not minimizing yourself and your experiences, whatever they are. And and again, mm-hmm. within that is it's it's that that idea of giving yourself grace and allowing yourself forgiveness that maybe mm-hmm. you're not healing as quickly as you want, or that you're feeling things that sometimes you feel like you shouldn't be or you don't want to be, and just again recognizing that that's that's all part of the process and it's okay you know you're not doing something wrong (laughs) because you were triggered by something you know thank you so much for being a part of this episode and this journey for everyone and sharing your story it's a privilege to have this conversation so thank you thank you so much i really appreciate it if you'd like to access our team of psychologists for professional mental health support please visit www.ethospsychology.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to Life in the Cyclone on your favourite podcast listing platform to better understand psychology today.